0: Okay, Jesse. After last week's episode, I'm truly impressed to know some people who are named Margaret <laughs> who are still alive and healthy, even if they go by Mags or Maggie. You know. <laughs> what do you have for me this time? When a charismatic
1: news anchor and mother of young children is gunned down in her driveway, the police turn their attention to her recent complaints of stalking. I'm Andy Cassette, and I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder.
0: Hi, Andy. Hello, Jesse.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about terrible dreams, horrified screams, and love gone fatally wrong.
0: You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast.
1: If you are enjoying this show, pretty please, love slash murder, five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe
0: and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are so excited, as
1: always this week, to welcome and shout out a new set of you wonderful folk.
0: Y'all, that was a big week. It was so fun.
1: It was so fun. So thank you to everyone who's joined. We have some really fun stuff and some new designs and merch that are going to be yes. coming
0: down. Hopefully by the holidays. So for now, let's do a big welcome to Corey N., Caitlin H., and Sarah H., Kelsey G., Justine G., and Bonnie, Christina L., Candy N., and Stephanie S. V., Jennifer M., Mandy B., and Sarah C., Cheyenne Y., Lorraine B., and
1: Penny, Anne G., Heidi B., and Meredith B., and
0: last but not certainly least... Melissa Kay. What up, Melissa Kay?
1: <laughs>
0: all right, guys. Thanks for
1: joining us. I think you guys have noticed I've missed some of our shout outs. So we probably going forward, unless it's somebody I recently talked to, won't have recommendation shout out requests. But I will say thank you to all of you because we've been getting a whole bunch lately. And I am so worried
0: about including some people, but leaving some people off. Also, so if we do your story, then just know that like we're thinking of you.
1: Yes, (laughs) and thank you so much. Especially when it's multiple people who have recommended something, I'm like, is this really everyone? Because it would be so crappy if like Kara C got a shout out, but like Jenny J didn't. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm likely will not be going forward, but just know that it really, really makes a huge difference. And I know a lot of you also send me book recommendations to go with your case requests. And that means the world to me. You know what
0: else you could do too is when we do cover a case that you have recommended, you can always reshare it and reshare the post like from the feed and say, I recommended this for my girls that love murder. And then we might find some new listeners out there from your recommendation. Yeah. And maybe we can send you a sticker or something like a special,
1: like a bookish one that we'll make up. (laughs) We have to do some new stickers at time. (laughs) And this is another reminder that We are still doing stickers for reviews. Yes. So make sure to screenshot your review and send it to us at lovers at lovemurder.love so you can get a free cool sticker. Right. Should we do it? Yeah, let's get into it. In 1990, California became the first state to criminalize stalking in the United States. The rise of celebrity stalkers turning violent was rampant throughout the 80s. John Hinckley attempted to assassinate President Reagan in 1981 because he was obsessed with Jodie Foster. An obsessed and resentful Mark David Chapman took the life of John Lennon in late 1980. And it was the shocking 1984 murder of a young actress named Rebecca Schaefer by her stalker of three years, Robert Bardo, that helped push anti-stalking legislation forward in California and then eventually nationally. As recently as 2016, the beautiful up-and-coming singer Christina Grimmie was murdered also by an obsessed fan. But stalking and murder are not exclusive to celebrities. The Guardian published a study in 2017 that showed that stalking behavior was present in 94% of all homicides.
0: Whoa. Yep.
1: Criminal justice researchers urged authorities to take early interventions on obsessive behavior and seemingly harmless, or at least what they, that's what they used to call it, stalking-type tendencies. Most of these times, it is an ex-intimate partner or an intimate partner. We've seen it time and time again, especially in current affairs. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yes. And it used to be something that people would just say, oh, this is just a domestic. This is just two people having an argument. And now researchers are really bringing to the attention of criminal justice professionals that this needs to be taken extremely seriously.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's one thing when it's someone who, you know, doing it, which is terrifying. And also I feel like way more prone to end in homicide because most homicide cases are someone who the victim knew. But there's another whole other level of creepy when it's someone who you don't know. When you don't know who they are. Especially as a celebrity. Exactly.
1: So technically the stalking cases of more regular people end in homicide more, but celebrities get stalked more in general by the unknown. Yep. They usually just have better resources in place and security measures than other people. Also, when a celebrity goes to the police, for the most part, their stalking complaints are taken seriously versus a regular person who is concerned about their ex-boyfriend or something. Most of the time, I believe now, those concerns are met with a little bit more understanding and attention, but it was not always the case. Okay. In 1990, Battle Creek, Michigan, no such anti-stalking laws had yet been passed. Much further away were the studies of the 2010s that will show just how dangerous stalking and obsessive behavior can be. So when local news anchor Diane Newton-King lit up Midwestern TV screens for the ABC affiliate nightly, she had expected to garner some new fans, but probably not obsessed ones. As frightening phone calls and letters rolled in, she reported the incidents to the station and to the local police. Diane and her husband lived in fear, and they were located in rural Marshall, Michigan, outside of the main area where she was reporting from, Battle Creek, and they had two very small children. Diane's husband, Brad, taught criminal justice at a nearby college. As a former police officer himself, he did know the dangers of stalking. After a particularly scary letter arrived in their mailbox, they brought it to the police. Unfortunately for the King family, the awareness of stalking dangers was less so in the small town precinct. The letter would sit on a desk for three months, pushed aside for more pressing crimes until a cold February day when powerhouse news anchor and loving mother Diane Newton King's worst fears would come true. So this is a story of fame, of twisted love, obsession, and shocking secrets. It's also the story of a truly strong woman who stopped at nothing to succeed and accomplish her goals in life. My primary source was the book Eye of the Beholder by the award-winning author who is always on point, Lowell Caulfield, and two shows that he actually makes an appearance on Forensic Files. The episode was called The News at 11, and an episode of Deadly Sins. Which is always like a funny. There's a really like hammy like narrator host, yeah. which is very yeah. funny. I actually kind of enjoy it. I'm sure you do, to be honest. And on Deadly Since they do two stories per episode, and it was funny because hers was matched with Eli from the Amish Stud yeah. episode way back. Real
0: throwback.
1: <laughs> it was a real throwback. It is. So I also use some blogs from It's Crime O'clock somewhere and Forensic Files now. So let's get started by talking about the incredible Diane Newton King, who was actually born Diane Marler on April 4th, 1956. She was a middle child of five kids born to Frida and Herbert Marler. Frida was an indigenous American who grew up on a Mohawk reservation. Wow. And Herbert was a Canadian iron worker who had met Frida after working with her brothers. Well, it sounds like they were bolting some sort of iron structures for bridges. Whoa. Yes, which I guess a lot of Mohawk Nation ended up doing a lot of that type of work, iron work, uh, across the like, Midwest and like around the Michigan area. Okay. At least from what I read in Eye of the Beholder. And so I guess he was friendly with her brothers and came home and met her. Diana adored her dad. And she would later say that she knew that she was his favorite. She was exceptionally bright. She's very strikingly good looking. And what she really loved about her relationship with her father was that he really believed in her and her intelligence and her ability to accomplish whatever she wanted. Now, both Herbert and Frida had left school pretty early. Frida left school in the seventh grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they had not graduated high school. And he told her almost every day, like as soon as she started going to kindergarten, that someday she was going to go to college. Okay. Okay. So it was like a goal that they wish they a, had for
0: themselves. Exactly. Like yeah. he was
1: going to make sure his children went farther than he and his wife had gotten the opportunity to do. Yeah. And he especially believed in Diane, who was very smart and had a lot of tenacity, a lot of resilience. Cool. So when he died in 1966, when she was only around nine years old. Oh, my God. And he was only 35. What? Yeah. How? Oh, gosh, it's horrible. He had an illness and he went into the hospital and they misdiagnosed the problem. And he ended up having a botched gallbladder operation. Uh, And it ended up rupturing his pancreas.
0: But the pancreas was really what was wrong.
1: Yeah. (sighs) Oh, my God. And he ended up dying post-surgery because they had gotten the diagnosis wrong. Oh, my God. Yeah, so this was devastating to the entire family, but and it was something that extremely affected Diane. And there, she, like, carried a lot of anger about it. It wasn't even just sadness. Like, she was, like, mad that her father was taken away. She was mad at him for leaving, even though it wasn't his fault. Of course, yeah. So the Marlers were given a pretty hefty malpractice payout. Yeah, I'd say. But, of course, nothing can no. replace losing your father, especially one that was so inspirational to you and in your corner from such an early age. (sighs) So Frida remarried a machine repairman named Royal Newton, which is some sort of name. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) Who was the brother of the owner of the bar where Frida had worked, because she has like five kids to take care of at this point. Though Diane would later adopt Royal's last name, and it was more because she liked the sound of it, like with King, like Diane Newton King. Yeah. Sounds like a news anchor. Yes. They did have problems. So when she adopted his name, like later on as an adult, I think it was because they had reached a place of understanding and care. And she liked the way it sounded professionally. But their relationship was rocky. In the early days of Frida and Royal's marriage, Royal was said to drink excessively and they fought a lot. So she went from having a dad that she hero worshiped yep. to a stepdad that she didn't necessarily like. Respect. Yeah. Yeah. And there was like a lot of fighting. Apparently, the police were called to the house a couple of times over domestic disputes. And adding to this tumult was the fact that Diane had a confusing relationship with her own Mohawk heritage. Her mother was raised and this wasn't on her mother either. It was like she was raised because of everything that went on. and, And, you know, I don't think we've personally talked about it, but you guys probably know about like the Native American residential schools, the terrible boarding schools. We recently watched the 1923, like the part of the Yellowstone, and there is like unflinching, like gut churning displays. Like they show the reality of life for so many Indigenous Americans who were forced into these schools and forced to not be able to use their languages, to not have like their belief system anymore. And that had happened to Diane's grandmother. Okay, so Diane had been beat if she spoke the Mohawk language. At school, she had been essentially forced to adopt Christianity. Yeah. And as a result, because of how that had been and how hard her life had been, she didn't really teach Frida
0: and then Frida didn't really teach Diane to embrace their heritage. I mean, it's like when people moved to the U.S. during that time as well and had to let go of their entire heritage and stop speaking Italian or it's... I feel like so many different cultures had to give up and were trained to forget their origin story,
1: yes, and in this case, it was systematic and intentional yes, so just un oh it's un- I'm unbelievable and I think that there's some podcasts out there that do full like full seasons or full like their entire subject is this subject matter because it's very intense it's very based in westward expansion and and politics and different mores of the time. But the craziest thing is that this type of like residential school system went on until like
0: 1978. Wild.
1: So they were kind of a product of a lot of this and they had embraced Christianity completely. And she wanted to learn a little bit more. And I think her mother, Frida, like later in life, ended up returning to her roots somewhat. But growing up, they didn't talk about it. Her mother had married two white men. So she was just, she wanted more of that relationship and she didn't have it. So there was just like a lot of confusing messages because she also did believe in Christianity. I believe it was Catholicism that was their type of Christianity. So she was very conflicted. Like, do I want to consider like what this means to follow like the great spirit and like learning the spirituality of her Mohawk yeah. ancestors? Or am I also committed to learning this religion that was adopted two generations ago by
0: my family? And assimilate to the country's exactly. expectations. Yeah. yeah.
1: So there's just a lot of confusing stuff going on. But one thing that Diane always felt was that voice inside of her that knew she could be anything she wanted to be. Yeah. And that was also, like, left over from her father. Yeah. That she remembered him telling her that as well. And even though she faced a lot of discrimination at school, too, and it wasn't necessarily because of her Mohawk background, people thought that she was mixed-race black a lot of times. So it was a totally different type of racism. Racism, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, they, like, obviously she was, like, othered in different ways. I guess she was, like, a little on the heavier side growing up. So they called her, like, chubby checker. And, like, all sorts of terrible names and, like, the N-word. But, like, this kind of fueled her to continue to want to succeed, to show everyone wrong. And she developed a very aggressive, tough, direct attitude. Because she was like, the world's going to, like, screw me anyway. Yeah, screw them first, essentially. So she did. She succeeded She was the first person on both sides of her family to graduate from high school. And then she went to uh, Wayne State University where she earned a communications degree. And it was, I think she went to another college first and like lived with the college president and his wife. What? Yeah. Because I think she was on a scholarship and they like let her live with them. And they like taught her like, this is what fork you use when you're at a really fancy dinner and all the
0: etiquette type of stuff. I mean, I never did that. I wish I would have.
1: Oh, my God. Sometimes I'm
0: like, what do I use? Like...
1: I just start on the outside and go in. Yeah, I know. That's like the only rule, I know. (laughs) My parents kind of tried, but it was bad. It was really bad. Like, they made me, like, sit in front of a mirror and eat dinner because I was really bad at chewing with my mouth open. (sighs) But I also think that's because I never shut up, too, so... I'm a plate stacker. Like,
0: I can't not stack Oh, I know.
1: But I think that's coming from working in the restaurant industry. Whenever I read things that servers hate and, like, what's also, like uncouth. It's always on the list. I'm like, oh, I just like it's like something in your brain wants to organize. Yes. Yeah. yeah. pre clean up. pre clean up. Exactly. So she then went to Wayne State and then she was commissioned from graduating from Wayne State as an officer in the army. What? Yeah. Well, Diane rose easily up the ranks in the military. She still questioned whether this was the right profession for her. There was still a lot of searching going on. In an effort to unlock her potential and figure out her life path, she attended an EST session. Mm. So EST, it's EST or EST, stood for Erhard Seminars Training. Officially, the training was supposed to, quote, bring to the forefront the ideas of transformation, personal responsibility, accountability, and possibility. So when I was looking at this, I was like, wow, this sounds a lot like the Landmark Forum that we talked about a lot
0: like ESP from Nexium as well.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like it's like
0: unlocking a, your your true potential. Yes, Exactly.
1: So I looked this up because of Landmark was Darren and Charlamac that episode. And apparently Landmark was actually founded by a group of people who had licensed the intellectual property of Est from its founder, Warren Earhart. So it's pretty much the same thing. It's an offshoot of Est.
0: Without being an offshoot.
1: Yes. Like they just kind of like took all the... Because Warner (laughs) Earhart got in a lot of trouble. Like his ex-wife was suing him for something. His daughter, who was like adult at that point, said all this terrible stuff about him and what a crazy, like horrible controlling person he was. He was just like in it and he was not a good face for the... Yeah. (laughs) ...organization. He was not unlocking his full potential, I think, at that point in his life.
0: Or he was and he was just not a great person.
1: Yeah. Or he was unlocking, like, some version. Like, this yeah. is the problem. Everybody needs balance. Like, you cannot be, like, full on, like, a professional badass when you're neglecting, like, your health and your family and your life in other ways. But in any case, I think that he basically was like, I'll sell the seminar intellectual yeah. property and, like, all of the information about members and everything. And I'll just get the hell out of here. Yeah. So that sounds like kind of happened Cut here. Cut my losses. Yes. So it was at one of these Est trainings that she met a police officer and trainer for Est named Bradford King. Okay. Brad had come from a very different background than Diane. His father was a really like certified World War II hero. I mean, he had a Purple Heart, Silver Star, like, I don't know all of the awards, but he had a whole wall of them because He had had multiple extremely near fatal injuries, saving like his entire, his entire unit was saved by him. And as a result of his bravery, they survived. But he also had to endure 30 surgeries over his lifetime. And he was reportedly in excruciating pain for much of his life after this. Nope. Nope. So his dad went on to become a banker. His mother was a college educated stay at home mom. And She sounded like very well-to-do because his mother must have gone to school in like the 30s and she was saying that her mother was college educated. Okay. So that means that they must have had a lot of money and a very progressive attitude if we're talking about he was born in the late 40s and his grandmother had gone to college as well. Yes. So this was a way more... Fancy, multi-generation of wealth and education. Wealth. Yeah. So she had a family that was, had struggled, had struggled a lot because their identities, especially on her mother's side, had been basically decimated. Yep. And his family had different struggles. I mean, there is no doubt that this World War II vet who was a genuine hero did not have struggles in his life. And like PTSD. Yes. Everything that man had gone through. So. These were two families that went through very different struggles, only in their lifetimes nobody cared about Diane's family struggle, and everyone, for good reason, worshipped worshipped his, Brad's father. So Brad grew up with a lot of money, resources, and support, but it was also the type of family which was kind of like the brush everything under the rug, Mm -hmm. don't talk about it, not especially warm, not especially emotionally supportive. So he didn't feel very connected to his family, even though he was given financial support. Yep. He didn't know that he had an older half-sister, even that his father had been married before until he was practically an adult. There was a lot of, like, secrets Uh or things people didn't talk about. And everyone revered his father because he had gone through this, but, like, even more so because he suffered in stoic silence. So he was kind of taught that you don't talk about what's wrong and that it's more manly and special if you, like, are suffering but you don't say anything. It's that, like, stiff upper lip. Just
0: silently suffering. (laughs) Silently dying. (laughs) Yes, that's what everyone wanted at this time. It's the whole, like, also
1: children are meant to be seen, not heard. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Like, what in what world does that ever happen? (laughs) Yeah, so this was, like, the environment that he grew up in And he also had issues with his mother for cutting down some of his ambitions. He was the oldest of two boys, and it seemed like maybe she liked the little brother more. There was some favoritism there. And then when he would tell her, like, things he wanted to do with his life, like, at first he wanted to go into anthropology. So cool. Yeah. And she was like, well, you wouldn't make enough money, so you can't do that.
0: Well, it's not always about money.
1: Well, it was for her. (laughs) And then he said, well, then I want to be, like, a fighter. Pilot, like a jet pilot, and she's like, "Well, you can't do that because you have allergies. Which you can't it, do
0: that if you have allergies." I don't
1: know. I didn't know that that was part of it. But this was sorry, Echo. <laughs> this was like from the book, so I don't know. <laughs> this is from Lowell Calfield's amazing research. That
0: that's off the table. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's not gonna be a fighter pilot. <laughs> Thank God.
1: <laughs> he was like a little resentful that she was not supportive of his ambitions. But socially, Brad did very well for himself. He went to Western Michigan University, where he was very much like a big man on campus type. He was in a fraternity, and the girls nicknamed him Mr. America. He met lifelong friends, like really, like still to this day, friends at college, as well as his first wife, Gail. She found him handsome, clever, smart. She thought he was a little entitled. She said that his sense of entitlement came from his upbringing. Quote, all their wants were met and their decisions were made for them. I don't think Brad ever got the chance to grow by making any mistakes. His mother hadn't approved of Brad becoming a police officer until he obtained his master's in criminal justice. And now she's like, oh, well, he's super well educated. He can do something else with his master's. And I think it was also an homage to his dad, too. Yeah. Because he didn't go to Vietnam, which was of this era, kind of. But he was, like, in a different way. He was, like, being in, like, a type of service to a community.
0: Also, majoring in criminology when you want to be a cop is pretty badass. Yeah. Like, that's a really good path of education to your occupation.
1: Yes. A master's is great to help you in your work that you're currently doing. But also...
0: In growing your abilities. Yeah. I don't think that was the worst call from moms, considering all the other <laughs> situations.
1: Yeah. <yes. laughs> and I think his father was really proud that he was serving his community. Of course. Yeah. So this marriage that was pretty early, they got married like right out of college it sounds and him? Gail and okay. Brad. And it sounded like it was a fairly good marriage. Gail even recalled how... Brad really adopted like her mother, who was very warm as a mother figure. Okay. And that while she was working, her and throughout their marriage, at some point, her mother got diagnosed with late stage cancer. And she was doing everything she could to help her mom and visit and make her more comfortable. And then she found out months later that Brad had been not telling her, but going every single day to visit her mom. And she said it was probably the most sensitive and kind that he had ever been in their marriage, like that he had done something so selfless. Yeah. And like didn't even make a big deal. But wasn't like, I saw your mom today, you know, that she didn't even know that he was making these daily visits to cheer her up and like bring her little things. And she said that she, um, she tried to tell Brad's mom about it, being like, I just want to tell you how amazing your son is that he's gone and visited my mom every single day since she got her diagnosis. And I guess his mom was like, oh, really? Well, he can't be fucked to visit me. Like, she wouldn't say that. She was too proper. So she wouldn't use that she word. But say, she was like, I'd be tiffed if he wasn't going to visit me. Yeah. Like, she was essentially
0: like, I can't believe he does that for yeah. your mother because he's never done that for Which me. Which is the exact... I mean, that's like different from being stoic and quiet. That's just being inconsiderate and rude to someone yes. who's
1: And also dying. not having an awareness yeah. about other people going through things. Yeah. yeah. We were just talking about that as well. So Gail spoke to the author, Lowell Caulfield, and told the story because it showed also kind of like their relationship. Yeah. So it showed like what kind of guy he was and also how his relationship with his mom was. <laughs> However, the relationship soured when their daughter Alyssa was born. It seems that Gail did not believe she could have children. She had been told that it might be impossible for her. So they had pretty much settled on not having children. And when she found out she was pregnant, she was so excited. They were many years into their marriage at this point. And he was a little less so. And she said later that she felt like he really enjoyed being the center of attention. Okay. He liked having all of her focus. Yeah. And that obviously
0: changes immediately when you have a kid.
1: Yeah. He said that it just didn't seem... She's like, it just changed around then. Yeah. And we couldn't do anything to like get it back.
0: Yeah. And he
1: was kind of involved as a father but not super duper hands on. It was like immediately, like when she was around one year old, they separated and then they officially divorced a couple years after that. It was altogether amicable, even if Brad had told her after the fact that he had cheated on her once or twice during their marriage, somehow it came up while they were settling everything. But like by the time that happened, she was just over it. Yeah. So she was like, I don't care. I don't need to know details. We've already finished it. And she was also getting ready to marry her current husband. Yeah. So it was like, that's all in the past. I don't need closure with that. But she did later tell the author and authorities that he had at one point cheated on her. So by the time Diane and Brad met, Brad was leaving the police force to work for Est full time. So he was in a transition period. And from the moment he laid eyes on Diane, he was done. It was different than... His relationship with Gail. It was described as like lightning bolt, love at first sight. Brad said that a friend of his who was in Est had already described Diane to him. Okay. And so he knew about this woman that was in Est and that she was vivacious and dynamic. And he was like, I think that you'd probably really like her. Brad made sure that he attended all the same seminars as her. So he could kind of like put himself in position to meet her. And he would speak of the experience of meeting Diane to author Lowell Caulfield in the following way. I remember the first time I saw her. It was at an Est guest seminar held in a hall in Bloomfield Hills. I was there and his assistant that night to enroll people in the training. Given that I was a guest seminar leader, that was my job. I saw her out of the corner of my eye. She was wearing navy blue wool slacks, little low heel Ferragamo slip-ons, and a silk blouse. I think it was like fuchsia, bright pink. Her hair was short. She had this smile that never disappeared. But I had things to do, and I couldn't even get near her to talk to her. Later, I was sitting looking at her. The guy sitting next to me said, what are you staring at? And I said, I'm staring at Diane. I'll fix you up, he said. And I said, no, don't. You just stay out of this. She sat there with dignity, just proud of who she was, knowing who she was. To me, she was the most beautiful woman in the room. And if you looked around, a lot of people would turn when they noticed her. Oh, that (laughs) gave me goosebumps. Uh Brad eventually introduced himself but the love at first sight might have been a little lopsided. He had to ask Diane out five times before she said yes. I mean, that
0: was like me and Dan. <laughs> Except I was Brad. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember exactly what he was wearing, too.
1: <laughs> Do you? Oh, yeah. Everything. Oh, Down my to gosh. a T. Yep. I can't remember. I think that Nathaniel could probably remember what I was wearing. Yeah. I had a tank top we called, like, first date tank for a while. And then we, like, lost it in a move and I'm so sad. Yeah. I think I can kind of remember what he was wearing. Obviously, something to bring out his eyes. (laughs) So it's like blue something. But yeah, so I guess he had like a little bit of a reputation. He was a single guy and he might have slept around at these est... I mean, it seems like the perfect place to sleep around. Yeah, people who are finding themselves, they don't know what they're doing. Yeah
0: purest potential. Yes, I can mean your your purest potential in bed. (laughs) Let me show you your purest
1: potential. (laughs) Yeah. So he was like, maybe she had heard that, you know, I was a little bit of a player, but eventually he did get her to go out with him. And then once she did actually spend time with him, it was like on like Donkey Kong, like by date two, they were an exclusive relationship. Brad had already told her he loved her. He said that He was like, Diane, I think I'm falling in love with you. And she goes, you think, or you are. He's like, I am. And she's like, that's what I thought. (laughs) So she's like intense. Like she's a very direct, she's very confident. So Diane ended up leaving the military and they both began careers as Est recruiters. On July 21st, 1984, the couple wed in the same Denver Unitarian Church where President Dwight Eisenhower had married his Mamie. Wow. (laughs) Iconic. A historical, I guess, church. Yeah. Sure. (laughs) They wrote their own vows with Brad saying, Today and always, I choose you to be the one I stand beside in life. You are the one I will love, support, and serve as we grow and expand in our aliveness. And she said, I pledge myself to having this marriage be magical and fun, inspiring, fulfilling, so at the end of my life, I can know that because of your love and support, I went far past my dreams. So they were, by every account, a very happy couple. But their parents might have been a little less than happy. I'd say his, probably, for sure. Well, both. Okay. Both families didn't particularly love really? this yeah. union. Really? no. So Diane's parents felt like Brad had always looked down on them. Oh. They also did not like Est. They did not think that this was good for Diane. And she had left a very stable career in the military yep. to be with Brad. And so she hadn't had any like she had a perfect sterling record with the military until she got together with Brad. And then she was missing trainings and she wanted to move to Denver with him. And she wasn't really interested in the military telling her where to go anymore. And so they kind of thought that it was Brad's fault that she went from a promising career to not making like anything as this like sort of S trainer. Yeah, but she was in an S training before before him yeah so but then she was like they were as a couple trying to like recruit her family to get into est so they just the whole thing rubbed them the wrong way. yeah I
0: mean it's like the recruiting thing when you said that they're both est recruiters I just can't help but think of like the other organizations that we've talked about that require recruiters to help keep it alive and it's like I feel like whenever there's something with trying to get people into the fold of an organization. Like
1: aggressively.
0: Yeah. It's like, a you, sh- you shouldn't really ever involve family, I feel like. They should want to no, do it on their they own accord. Should. You can
1: like tell them what yeah, you're of course. doing. They want to know probably. Yeah.
0: But yeah, it's It was just... kind of
1: aggressive. I also read just on the Wikipedia page that like Warner Earhart and L. Ron Hubbard, like the Scientology guy, had been like in some legal dispute about the teachings and similarities. Hmm. Basically, Diane's family was like, I think this is bad news we don't like that you're, like, all immersed in this now. Yeah. Even though you're right. You're totally right that Diane went to it willingly on
0: her own and then met Brad. Yeah. But obviously, as, like, the family, you don't want to necessarily see things that way. Yes. Also, if you feel like the dude's looking down on your family, too. Which is, yes. Like,
1: he talked about his dad, the banker, and how well-educated his family was. And obviously, other than Diane, most of her family had not... I think her brothers and sisters did, but, like, gone to college eventually. But, like... Frida was feeling, like, looked down upon. Yeah.
0: He could have just been speaking the way he speaks about his family to everyone, but...
1: Yeah. That's also, it feels different when it's you. Like, sometimes we don't
0: mean to take things personally, but it feels personal to us, even if it
1: wasn't intended that way. Yep. Who knows? All I know is that Brad's mother also never warmed to Diane. <sighs> I think that there was some class issues there, obviously. But I also think that Gail, Brad's ex, had really tried to please his mom. Yep. Like, she had, like, bent over backwards to become the perfect wife because, of course, his mom didn't, like, love Gail right away.
0: She doesn't seem like she loved anyone.
1: Yeah. I think she loved his little brother. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Basically, Gail, after all those years and giving him a grandchild, like, she had finally gotten to a place where she, like, loved Gail, and then they got divorced. And so now Diane's coming in, and she has an affinity for Gail, even though Gail doesn't care. Gail was very warm with Diane. But I also think that it was that Gail, like, did a, like, a deferential treatment type thing, like, to her mother-in-law, like, you're the boss. Yeah. And, like, nobody was the boss of Diane. She was not going to mince words. She's not going to be overly concerned. Like, she knows that Brad loves her, and that's all that matters, and she doesn't really give a shit. I mean, she's not really wrong. No, the relationship should be about you and your spouse, and if... The in-law is respectful to you. Of course, you should treat them with respect, especially if your partner has a good relationship or a happy, healthy relationship. You should not interfere in that in any way as long as there's mutual respect there. Yeah. But if you're treated poorly, then you should not be required to bend over backwards to make somebody happy. No. So, yeah, this was not an in-law love fest all around. At 29, Diane decided that she wanted to put her communications degree to use
0: and pursue a degree in broadcast journalism. So cool, at 29, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, and listen to how ballsy she was. She cold-called the Denver anchorwoman who had been in the TV business for 20 years and was straight up like, I really want to pick your brain. I want to learn how to be an anchorwoman. I have a degree in communications that I want to use. I haven't used it for years. I'm ready to like work my way up. And this woman who had a great name, the Denver anchor was named Rinalda Muse. Amazing. (laughs) Oh, my God. Rinalda Muse. It kind of reminds me of, um, okay, guys, if you're from the capital region (laughs) of New York (laughs) and you are somewhere between the ages of probably like 32 and 50, I don't know, you will remember Yolanda Vega. (laughs) She was the woman who Like, picked the Powerball. Amazing. And they'd be like, your Powerball picks tonight with. And she'd be like, Yolanda Vega. And then she'd be like, one, 62. So anyways, Ronaldo Muse was like, I got to tell you, it's probably not going to happen. Really? Yeah. She was like, look, you're 29. Everyone in this business is like straight out of college, straight out of broadcast journalism school. They're coming in like 21 and hungry. She's like, you're going to have to do some almost like intern like positions to work your way yep. up. But I feel like she'd be down for that. Yeah, which she was. But yep. she's like, but then by the time you like spend years doing it, yep. you're going to be like 35. And unfortunately, this, I mean, it's always like, it's like modeling. Yeah. It's always ageist in these types of positions, but especially in the 1980s when it was like anchor women. Yeah. Which if you guys saw Anchor Man, I you'll, love Lamp. <laughs> you'll know that it was. Pretty sexist just to break into the anchoring business or just to exist. I can't believe I'm using Anchorman, Will Ferrell's Anchorman, as like a reference, like a research reference. Like, if you've seen that unbelievable work of uh, documentary filmmaking. (laughs) Yeah. So she's basically like, look, it's going to be really hard. I definitely think, like, if you have the tenacity, but just know that, like, you might not end up being Reynalda Muse. Yes. You might not be (laughs) Reynalda Muse and also work on your name. Maybe put that Newton wreck in there, Diane Newton King. But she was like, I don't care. I'm going to do it. And she was really tenacious. So she got a production assistant job at a Denver PBS affiliate. And within six months, she had snagged an on-air position at a Grand Junction station. Crazy. Just on the basis of her audition tape alone. Diane was tireless. Like, she was an investigative journalist. So at the beginning, she was, like, bringing her own stories. So she wasn't, like, the anchor person. It was, like, the person that they were, like— They bring in. They bring in to tell their story and report on it, and the person they throw it to. And the station manager at the Grand Junction station said that he had seen his share of youngsters looking for a start, but nobody like King. Quote, She worked long and hard to establish and build sources, and she worked hard on those sources— she was probably the most aggressive we've had since I've been here. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so she was going for it. Within five years of cold calling Renal the Muse, Diane took an anchor position in Battle Creek, Michigan and accomplished her goal. <whistles> so they moved there? So they lived in Marshall, Michigan, yep. which was just outside of Battle Creek. So yeah, it takes ballsiness and a lot of grit to rise that fast. Oh no shit. And Diane ruffled a lot of feathers. She was competitive, aggressive, direct, and she refused to take no for an answer. This made her a hell of an investigative reporter, but it also made her some enemies at work. For sure. Yeah. There was like one guy who, when this was all publicized, ended up getting fired from his position for saying. He was like talking shit on her, essentially he was a news director at one of their places. And he said that she was just really aggressive and that she'd even like told him one time that she was going to have his job. She's like, get ready because I'm gonna get your job. But the Forensic Files Now blog that I read brought up the fact that a lot of the criticism around Diane and her personality are things that would be considered pro if it was a man going up in the business. Yeah, And there's like some other stuff that I read. Like there was like, Her hairdresser friend or something said there was some times that she would be a little self-centered and she would say stuff that like was kind of obtuse, like she didn't have a lot of empathy. But again, these are things that if this was a guy on Wall Street or something, they would laud him for, like only caring about your own business, making sure you're succeeding, focusing on yourself. Yeah. Getting ahead to the exclusion of everything else. Yeah. Out. Out. I think that that was the measure of Diane's very strong personality. So by the time Diane made Anchor in Michigan, the couple had moved to Marshall, which was just outside of Battle Creek, where they were fixing up a farmhouse. Now, they were not making a ton of money because even when she got the news anchor position, it still wasn't paying a lot. And it sounds like Brad was only sporadically working. He was now working as a criminal justice professor he didn't always have a full schedule. Like some semesters he didn't work or some semester he had one class.
0: And summer are off.
1: Like, exactly. Yeah. So he wasn't always working. So they didn't have a ton of money. But what they did do is they ended up finding a really good situation with a landlord who had a farm that they were willing to rent out. And they got like super subsidized rent for Brad fixing up
0: the property. Sounds familiar.
1: Yeah. So he was able to charge everything to the landlord but like also really turn over this place so that's kind of what they were doing in order to give their children this beautiful bucolic setting on a shoestring budget and at the time that they moved to marshall they had only their son marler who was named for diane's father's name her original maiden name and Marler was born on March 6th in 1988. And then their daughter, Kateri, was born on November of 1990. Things did appear to be going up for this couple. So they have this, yeah. like, nice place to live, a good deal. He's really enjoying his work as a criminal justice professor. Yep. They have two beautiful children. And Diana was also volunteering at various charitable organizations. She was working um, with... The Gulf War vets and helping the soldiers that were active military yep. during the Gulf War at this time. She worked for like a local soup kitchen. So, even though she is like literally giving birth and an anchor woman and doing a lot of the childcare still, because he had to commute to the college. So, he was gone a lot of the day, even if he was only teaching one class. Yep. So, she was a very, very busy woman and she was kind of hoping to parlay her success in the media to starting her own media company to amplify the voices of other Native Americans across the country and make sure to tell their stories from them. So cool. So all of this seems like it's like they're very directional. Like they're very much thinking of like, this is great. She became an anchor. That was her goal. Now, what do we do with this that helps a community? Yeah. And around this time, Diane began to receive some chilling letters and phone calls. Hmm. andy there is nothing worse than when your dog is having a hard time with their food they're a member of the family so their food shouldn't be in the doghouse. so what can you feed them that they'll gobble up and will also help them thrive
0: if you're wondering that at home you need to hear about Nom 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 delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs so you can bring out their best Nom Nom's made with real, whole food that you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy.
1: That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real, good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists made fresh and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls, and bowel movements, and tail wags.
0: Nom Nom's ingredients are cooked individually and then mixed because science tells us that every protein, carb, and veggie has different cook times and methods. This gives your dog efficient energy and packs in the vitamins and minerals they need, truly getting the most out of every single bite. For our burner Artemis, or Artie as we call her, this is a huge deal. Like
1: many Bernice Mountain dogs, she has a bit of a temperamental tummy and some particular ingredients like chicken can actually make it worse. That's why it's so incredible to find a service that really cares as much about our pet as we do and can help customize meals for any need or allergy or issue. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just nom
0: nom. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trinom.com slash lovemurder. Spelled
1: com slash lovemurder for 50% off trinom.com slash lovemurder. The calls began in the spring of 1990, so at this time she's pregnant with yep. Kateri. And they always came to the station. According to the police report, Diane eventually filed. The man who was calling sounded like he was in his 20s or 30s. He said that he was a huge fan of Diane's. He would compliment her work. And then he, at the beginning, asked her questions about how he could also break into the business. So at first, she was really polite. She tried to answer all of his questions. So she, she spoke could. to him on the phone. She did. She okay. spoke to him directly on the phone. But the same guy kept calling and calling sometimes three times a week. And eventually, like, she was complaining about it to Brad. And he's like, this is getting a little creepy. Yep. And the guy was, like, pushing for them to meet up. And they didn't have his name? They had a name, but it didn't turn out to be his real name. Okay. Everything was, like, a little sus about this situation. Yep. And so Brad's like, well, stop answering your own phone. And have the receptionist at the station answer the phone. Yep. And screen the calls. And so she started doing that. The station actually was taking it seriously. And they beefed up their security. They made sure actually no phone calls got through to her. And they answered some of her fan mail on her behalf. So, like, she wasn't being exposed to it. And they were making it clear that she wasn't going to see these messages. So and nobody got, like, any ideas of how they could continue to reach out to her. But somehow, I don't know what happened. Somehow this guy, like, I don't know if he tricked the receptionist or whatever. He did get through to Diane a few weeks after this and he demanded that she go out to lunch with him and she was like nine months pregnant when this was happening so she was like yeah no like I don't even have the energy and space to be polite to you anymore absolutely not and you have to never call me again yeah and basically hung up the phone then a little bit after that she received a letter that was written like ransom style like from a movie you know like yeah, yeah, cut out yeah. magazine yeah. style and the letter had been in her mailbox without a postmark. At home or at the station? At home. And they have no idea how this guy yeah. had gotten her home address. So this is very scary, obviously. Yes. And the note read with the cutout letters, you should have gone out to lunch with me.
0: Ugh. Yeah. Creepy.
1: And she's like literally about to give birth. So this is a horrible time in her life. So the Kings brought the letter to the police, who did begin processing it for fingerprints, Brad installed motion detector lights at their home for more security, and they adopted a full-grown Doberman as well. However, only six weeks later, Brad King called back to report that while his wife had been away visiting her mother, someone had tried to break into their house. What? And it also turned out on the same day as the break-in that Diane had received another fan letter, but this one to the station. It was kind of a weird message. It was kind of creepy, but like it wasn't like letter cut out creepy. So they could have been related or it could be like another. Another, Yeah. Yeah. After Katari was born in late November, Diane was second guessing her career choice. It wasn't just that the stalker business was scary, but also that having a three-year-old and a newborn. Yeah. Was really hard. Babe. While working full time. So she wanted to stay home with the kids. It was like one of those things where she knew she was missing time with them. It goes so fast. And she was really like just run ragged from being the breadwinner and essentially the full-time caretaker. Yeah. Like even her hairdresser was saying it was like a little obnoxious that she would like bring her kids with her every time she went to get her hair done because they'd run around. Like not the baby, but like the three-year-old would get into everything. Yeah. Including like some of the stuff they were selling. She just didn't have a lot of help. And whatever help she had, she had to use while she was
0: at work. Yeah, not while she's getting her hair done.
1: Exactly. She just didn't have a lot of time. And so at this point, I think during the time Kateri was born, Brad was only working one class. Like he was only teaching one class. Okay. But with this long commute, like I mentioned, he was gone almost all day with like so little to show for it, like monetarily. Yeah, I don't understand that. Yeah. So Brad's solution to this was to go back to school to get his PhD, which of course would be more time before he started making
0: any money, and any more money.
1: Yes, and more money. So it's more stress on Diane. And for the first time, I think, in their mutual careers, they did not seem to be on the same page. Because he had always been super supportive of her career, like even like one of her coworkers said that she saw him before she knew it was Diane's husband because he was like wearing a shirt that was like Diane Newton King, the best new thing or something like the next big thing or something, and she's like, that's so funny but cute but kind of weird. So he had always been super supportive of her career, yeah. But now she's saying, I don't want this career. Like they had gone out and tried to get a grant to create this media company, yeah. But the man who spoke to them about giving them this grant, based on the fact that she was Mohawk, thought very much that they wanted to basically be a private business. Like they didn't know how it would help their community. And that it was weird because Brad was there and he's like very, very obviously white. And he was like kind of like acting like he was part of it. (laughs) So he's just like really into it. And you'll see later too, he's like very much into. Native American studies and everything. That's what he wanted to get his PhD in. It's not in criminal justice. Like, it's like nice that he is like also involved in her culture and supportive. And learning about it. Yeah. But at this point, Diane doesn't care about this because that got rejected. So they're not starting a media company. Yeah. They don't have the money to do it. Yeah. She's tired. She doesn't want to be the breadwinner anymore. She has been the breadwinner. It's time for him to go get a job. It's his turn. And that's what she's saying. Like, I just gave birth to our second child. I am exhausted from all of yes. this. The whole media company didn't really work out. Like, that doesn't mean it won't forever. But like, right now right it's now, not yeah. working out. And I don't think he had any classes lined up for like the next semester. Okay. So she's like, it's time. You got to get a job. It's totally time. I'm done carrying us for now because I'm, I just need a break. So in early February, Diane took a trip to her mother and stepfather's house. And it wasn't uncommon for Diane to travel with the kids alone. At this point, Kateri is almost three months old and Marlar is three because, of course, like Brad didn't always get along with her parents. Yeah. So like a lot of times she'd just be like, I'm going to go visit my mom for the weekend. I'll bring the kids and we'll see you when we get back. Yeah. And so she told her mother that weekend that they were seeing a counselor to work on their marriage and that actually what they really needed was some alone time, as you can recall, with like very early infant stages. Yeah. Having a toddler, there's no alone time to be a couple. And she was like, maybe if we had some alone time, we could rekindle yeah. this relationship and it would be easier for us to do it because they had had a pretty passionate relationship that had petered out, obviously, with two kids. So they made a plan that Diane would leave the kids, the three-year-old and the three-month-old, with her mom for a couple nights. And then it sounded like either she'd come back and get the kids or her mother was going to drive the kids to their house Okay. at the end of this couple nights. And so he knew about this, Brad knew about it, Diane obviously knew about it, and they're planning on it, but then it didn't actually end up working out, because I forget which one, but one of the kids got sick, and then Diane was like, well, also, Kateri's still breastfeeding, and I don't know what I'm going to do for two days, Yeah, because I don't think it was as easy to, like, pump and give breast milk at this point, so... She's like, oh, this was a nice idea, but I just don't think it's going to work out. Yeah. So last minute, she decided to take the kids home with her after that. So in the end, on Saturday, February 9th, 1991, Diane packed the kids up in the car and they all took off for home. They left her mother's house around 4.15, 4.30. And it would be a day that Frida would never forget because it would be the last time she ever saw her daughter alive. Okay, Andy knows that I am so thrilled to talk about today's sponsor, Honey
0: Love. You genuinely have been WhatsApping me about it for <laughs> weeks now. So I'm very excited to hear about Honey Love.
1: Uh, seriously, but there's a reason for that because they really do create such amazing products. Listeners, I will bet that many of you have tried all sorts of shapewear. But Honey Love is something totally different than your typical shapewear. This company has revolutionized compression technology, so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating while wearing effective shapewear.
0: Honey Love's best-selling Superpower Short is a total go-to. It has targeted compression technology that distinguishes between areas you want more support versus areas you need a little less compression. It's designed to work with your body, not against it. Another thing you don't have to worry about with Honey
1: Love items is rolling down, which is basically unheard of in shapewear. That's thanks to flexible boning that is hidden in the side seams.
0: Rolling down is so annoying.
1: And it really doesn't happen with Honey Love.
0: (laughs) This is all the more important now that we're firmly in wedding season. Woo! Who among us hasn't been there? Struggling to take off tight pieces of shapewear with a bathroom line out the door? Honey Love solves that problem with 100% cotton gusset so that you can skip the extra undies plus a convenient opening that means no costume changes required.
1: I genuinely
0: cannot figure out how they make it so comfortable.
1: That's <laughs> when I, was, I did a WhatsApp video for Andy. I'm so excited to try it on. <laughs> I
0: haven't gotten mine yet because I've been traveling.
1: And I just do not understand what magic they have done to make something that makes you smooth and compressed. But I could literally wear it all day. My other favorite piece from Honey Love is their crossover bra. As Andy knows, I wear almost exclusively sports bras or I like things that don't have any wires. I don't necessarily want my chest to look a lot bigger, but I do want to have a shape. And I think that their crossover bra is perfect. I've been literally wearing it nonstop since I got it and I've already ordered a second one.
0: What it comes down to is this. Shapewear shouldn't be hard. Their products make you look good and feel great. Whether it's for a wedding, event, or an everyday boost of confidence, Honey Love is the perfect plus one. Treat yourself to the best
1: shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com lovemurder. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off, honeylove.com lovemurder. Hey, lovers. We are so excited to share this promo from Music City 911. As you're about to hear, host Brandon has over 20 years of 911 dispatcher experience. His shorter, quick hitting episodes bring you behind the scenes of some of the most unbelievable cases out there, playing heartbreaking 911 calls and police audio on every single episode. Music City 911 offers something really different from most true crime podcasts out there, and we really do hope you'll check it out. Also, Brandon has an unbelievable voice. Step aside, Bob Mata. There's a new game in town.
2: The world of 911 emergency dispatching is brutally diverse. One minute you can be talking with someone about parking violations. Uh, what's the process we are to take to have people told? Because it's actually delaying the mail and then all hell can break loose, then the rest of the day is crazy. We could have murders. Hill County 911, what's your emergency? I just killed my children. Home invasions. He's in my house, he's in my house. I shot him. You
1: shot him? He was coming up towards me and I shot him. Natural disasters. Tornado came are a I'm buried under a to all my life.
2: <laughs> Even bombings. My show, Music City 911, will put you in the dispatcher's chair, put you ear to ear with the callers and responders, and keep you on edge from start to finish. I hope to both educate and entertain, as I'm a 911 dispatcher with over 20 years' experience. And just like dispatching, every episode is different from the last. Music City 911, real 911 calls, real 911 dispatchers. Available to listen to on any podcast app.
1: At 6.49 that day, the Marshall police were patched through by an operator to a hysterical Brad King. He screamed that he had found his wife on the ground near her car, so basically in their driveway. He had been out for a walk with their dog. And when he had come back, he had discovered
0: her. Sounding sus. Yeah.
1: He said on the phone that she wasn't moving and there was blood coming out of her mouth. He didn't know exactly what was wrong. So the first officer on the scene immediately clocked Diane lying on the ground without a pulse. So she is most definitely dead. So she is on the ground next to her car. He also noticed that inside the car with the doors closed, there was a preschool age boy who was screaming and crying at the top of his lungs, but alive, like unphysically injured. And he was like fighting against his car seat, trying to get it unbuckled, which is just heartbreaking. And then there was also an infant still strapped into her car seat. But I think she was, by the time the police officer arrived on the scene, she was quiet, but alive and okay. Now, this comes up later that it was very suspect that Brad had not gotten his children out of the car. She's on the ground bleeding and he was inside. So he's in the house when they come. Now, back in the day, people didn't have cell phones. So... He might have still been on the phone with the operator on a landline. So the fact that he's in the house isn't pretty suspect at this point. It's more that his children are screaming in the car and he hadn't tried to help them at all. Yeah. Immediately, the police officer thought that was weird. And later, Brad will say that he thought that Diane was possibly still alive. And so his first priority was getting help to them.
0: But then after you're off the phone, you can't run and get the kids out? That's the thing that
1: I think is strange. You could even say, this is my address. Get somebody here right away. I have to go get my kids. 100%. Yeah.
0: That's the natural reaction.
1: Yes. So this was like the immediate red flag that's going off here is that there's these clearly distressed children. And they had gotten to the house five minutes after he called. Okay. Which is pretty good for a small town, rural area. It was quickly determined that not only was Diane dead, but she had been shot. Once from an upward angle, so it looks like somebody had shot her from above, and then again through the pelvis. So basically one shot was coming from above that likely would have killed her alone. And then it seemed that the killer had then come down from wherever they were perched, come down to the ground, and then shot her an upward angle, like basically through the vagina, like through the pelvic bone. That's really weird. Yes. Yes. And this could be to make sure that she was dead or it could also be as a statement. Yeah. Because obviously she was shot through a feminine area like near the vagina, through the womb. Yeah. According to Brad, who was wearing head to toe camo, he had been out walking the dog when he heard a shot rung out. He didn't remember if he heard one or two shots because he said that they live in an area where a lot of people go hunting, which was true. So when you hear gunshots, it's not necessarily something that immediately scares you. You just think somebody's hunting in the woods. Something else I learned that's really interesting from this Lowell Caulfield book, which he was talking about stalkers and he was talking about people on TV. Uh-huh. I learned that the reason why we can't take our eyes like off of a TV. So like if you're in a bar or something, there's a TV flickering and yeah. you're not interested, you like find your eyes going towards yeah. it, even if you're not interested in the subject yeah. matter. Is because of the movement, the way that the screen is and the constant movement is something that our brains register to protect us from predators. Yeah. And so we are biologically drawn to looking at a moving screen.
0: Totally makes sense. Yeah.
1: So he said that he didn't think anything of it until he came closer to the house to put the dog in the house. Yep. And he saw that Diane's car was in the drive. And that she was on the ground. And that was when he ran up and approached the car. And again, he said he decided to call 911 first because he wanted to save his wife's life. So the police pretty quickly recalled that Diane was the news anchor who was getting threatening phone calls and letters. So immediately they are concerned that this is the stalker. Yeah. And of course, they're feeling some level of culpability. Yeah, yeah, Which, to their credit, they said later that... Even Diane hadn't been super duper helpful in this process because they had to get everyone's prints that had touched the letter to exclude them. Yeah. Including, especially Diane. Yeah. And so they had called her a couple times being like, hey, you need to come down to the station and get fingerprinted. Yeah. But with her schedule, she's like, well... Like, the guy on the phone said... They should have she, just
0: gone and done her fingerprint somewhere else.
1: Maybe they should have gone to the station yes. and just did it there. Yes. But I don't know what the process was, and I don't know what it was, like, yeah. in
0: 1990. But, like, if a working mom of two can't get down to the station to fingerprint for you guys for something that she's reporting...
1: Yeah, but I think they're very stretched thin as well. It's a very small town. So it's, like, everyone is... Yeah. And they're... At from, capacity. Yeah, at capacity. And their opinion about this was... Essentially, like, if she was really freaked out and this was really
0: important. Then she would come down. Then she would come yes. down. Yes.
1: So, like, basically, it was, like, a perfect storm of them, like, not totally. pushing it forward. And maybe Diane, because of, like, her life yeah. and her marriage is in trouble and she has a three-month-old and she has a full-time job as a news anchor and she's volunteering. Like, yeah. She's Louise. Like, this woman doesn't have a lot of time. So no. between those two things, like, it had not ended up getting move. So now they're like, oh, shit, this is like on us. We should have like pushed it forward. We didn't take the threat very seriously. So they have to go back and be like, we need to look at everyone who has written her letters, everything that's going on here. And luckily, one of the police officers, and this is, again, a small town situation, had actually lived on the property before. So he knew the property very well. And when they're trying to figure out the trajectory, he's like, there's a loft in the barn that's like right there that would probably be the right trajectory. They went up into the loft and they found a 22 shell casing. (sighs) Like in the hay. Whoa. So they're like, okay, it's likely now that we think the stalker was lying in wheat in the barn. And this barn wasn't used all the time, obviously. Like it was not a working farm by any means. So they found the 22 shell casing. And while they are starting to figure out, like, maybe we have to go back. We have to see, like, go to the station, get all the letters she's received, any other complaints. They also got a police dog named Travis and his handler, Gary Liesel, called in to see if they can follow the scent. Because now they're like, they need to, like, smell the scene. Because they know that the killer got close enough to Diane to shoot her in the pelvis shot. Yeah. So he's probably up there and he was probably down by her. And then he must have escaped somehow. Yeah. So... Now they need to track the scent. Yeah. And so they also go into length in the book, which I really enjoyed learning about, was how dogs smell this stuff. And it's essentially like when they're looking for a killer, it's very different for when like they're looking for a missing child. Yeah. But one thing they're looking for is that when we are nervous or when we have adrenaline going through our system because we're trying to get away with something or we're nervous we're going to be caught. We apparently excrete a very specific scent. So cool. Yep. And then our skin cells slough off as we run away or as we go places. And that's how they are tracking us. So cool. Yeah. Because I never like, I was like, I always knew they were tracking a scent, but I didn't know exactly how. And it's because we are getting rid of our skin cells. So they're smelling those skin cells.
0: That is insane. Is that
1: insane? Yeah. So Gary and Travis, the dog. Yeah. (laughs) So Travis picked up a scent. And he went through the woods kind of like behind the house. Yeah. There was like a little bridge and a small pond or I wasn't really sure. And like one of the, the shows I watched, it seemed like it was like a shallow creek. And another, I, I read that it was a small pond, but it's a small little area of water. And in the shallow water was a twenty two rifle and more shell casings. So it appeared as though the killer had been in the barn. Yeah. Shot her for the first time from the above angle. Yeah, I guess it's downward angle. Yeah. And then come down, shut her again through the upward angle, then ran off through the woods, dumped the gun and some more shell casings in the water. So for obvious reasons, they're looking at Brad. Yes. They have to. He's also standing there wearing camo. But like I said, they have to figure out exactly who was stalking Diane before her death or if it was multiple people. So they comb through all of Diane's fan mail that are ever recorded. Yeah and they discovered that Diane had received a letter from a fan that was suggestive but not threatening. The letter writer was a 22-year-old man named James Wickware Jr., and he had identified himself to Diane as one of your local viewers from Battle Creek who hadn't, quote, missed an edition of the news since you joined TV41 News. He called her the best journalist in the country, certainly one of the most beautiful-looking, I believe you have the prettiest color of hair that I have ever seen, also a pretty color of eyes, a beautiful face, beautiful voice, and a nice-looking body figure with beautiful wardrobe fashions.
0: Oh, <laughs> yes, a little
1: little creepy. So he closed by wondering how much it would cost for him to get an autographed photo of her. Okay. So it turned out that James had actually met Diane in person. He had been waiting for a newspaper to be printed. I guess like he's a big newspaper news person. And when Diane interviewed him for a story about the closure of a nearby mental health center, she was like, what do you think? What do you think about the emerging mental health crisis? And he had given her some quote. And James had really been wowed by Diane. But as the police dug into his life and his correspondence, they realized that it seemed like he might have a lot in common with this mysterious phone caller. James liked female news and TV personalities. He did not work outside of the home and instead was paid by his parents to care for his elderly grandmother. Okay. So James spent a lot of time watching TV. He seemed like he liked female news anchors the most. He thought that they were, quote, smart and pretty and they look you right in the eye is what he said. Oh, God. So he wrote to several anchors and journalists in a similar vein to what he had written to Diane, sometimes asking for autographs and photos and sometimes asking for advice. like Or to go to lunch. Like how to break into the news business. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When he got responses, he would put them into a manila folder and then it became a box. And his collection eventually grew to more than... 225 photos of different media personalities across the nation. Yeah, it's a lot. And there was one other woman who I think had worked at another affiliate, like it wasn't the ABC affiliate, it was a different news station, who said that she was led to believe that he was an elderly person and that she thought she was sending a photo for an elderly fan that couldn't leave the home and was shocked to find out it was like this 22-year-old guy. Yeah, the 22 is so young. So young. Yeah. So naturally, this guy is a big person of interest, but he ended up having an airtight alibi. He lived with his family and multiple people could confirm that he had been home at the time of the shooting.
0: All family members, though?
1: I think it was mostly family members, but I do believe that the community they lived in was like, it was like neighbors right on top of each other. Of course. Yeah. Nobody else had seen him like coming and going. Yeah.
0: His dad
1: was interviewed by the police and he was like, he's never even held a gun. He doesn't know how to shoot. He'd be afraid to shoot a gun. Like, it just seemed
0: that... It was more of like a obsession
1: than a yes, stalker. He's a, he's a little off. And yeah. I guess his dad... First of all, this is a black family. And his dad was very much like, did not like the fact that he was so obsessed with a lot of these predominantly white news anchor ladies yeah. And that he wasn't going out and, like, living his life and going out on dates, which he didn't do. He didn't really leave the house. Yeah. He was instead, like, finding this obsession with these women, he said, which, in his father's opinion, were part of the problem. They didn't give a shit about him or his race or the struggles of black Americans. And that's not what they were reporting about. And they actually reported, like, you know, things against the community. So he was, like, already, like, pissed at his son about this. Yeah. And so when he spoke to the police and later to Lowell Caulfield, he was essentially like, I don't fucking like this. I don't like that this is his thing. I don't like that he doesn't, like, go out and date and, like, have a normal life. Yeah. But, like, he definitely didn't do this because he's just not that guy. Yeah. There's a difference. There's a difference. Yeah. So they pretty much at that point were pretty sure it wasn't him. And they looked at the rest of her fan letters and they were mostly run-of-the-mill Fan letters, like, it didn't seem outside of this mysterious stalker, which did not seem like it was James, like, M.O. even. Yeah. Like, the mysterious, like, letters. The ransom note. Yeah, the ransom note style. They were like, okay, we don't have a lead on anyone else who seems like this type of person. It could still be some mysterious random stalker we don't know about. Or maybe Diane's killer and stalker might be a little closer to home. Perhaps the stalker calls were coming from inside the
0: house. Yeah, they didn't have Star 69 back then, did they? No, I don't think they did.
1: Well, Travis, the police dog, had followed the scent after finding the gun right back to the king's house. Yeah. At first, they were like, well, maybe the stalker did the killing and then got rid of the gun and then followed back to be in the area because there were neighbors and bystanders and people now congregating at the house behind the police tape. So there was like a small crowd of people. So they have to canvass like all the people that are like looking like little creeps. Yep. Because the dog had like brought them
0: right back there. Or it's Brad. Yes. <laughs> there's
1: or there's the obvious or it's Brad. Or the obvious it's Brad, Situation. the guy who
0: only wants to work maybe one day a week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so after his initial cries of distress, Brad was uncommonly calm and stoic. And kind of emotionless following like his, dad. his yeah, wife's murder. Now, he said later that this was because his stoic dad, but also his police training so that his mind could click into procedural and like holding what was going on with
0: his wife aside. He's not working as a cop. He's working as a professor. Yes.
1: But also his story was that the stalker had somehow gotten up into the barn loft. That's like he was agreeing with the police when they were like, OK, it definitely came up from there. And so they're, like, thinking that, but then they're like, Brad, weren't you home all day? He's like, yeah, I've been home all day, doing stuff around the house, me and the dog. And I think that the dog slept in the barn part of the day. So they're like, okay, this doesn't make any goddamn sense because why would the stalker come see you, like, bopping around the property, not Diane, anywhere, and not know when she was coming home and then get into the barn loft to stay there for... God knows how long, with no exit, in case you, ex police officer, and a Doberman would discover them during the day and daylight. So weird. It's very, very weird. Like, how would the dog not be alerted to the fact that there was a strange presence on their property? Yeah, like, not be sniffing around and barking and saying, Hey, there's like, I smell this like stranger with a gun up there. It would. Yeah, so they're like, this doesn't make any sense. It also, no one knew exactly when Diane was coming home except for Brad. She didn't know exactly when she was gonna be coming home. When she was leaving, Royal, her stepfather was on the phone and so she didn't wanna wait around for him to get off the phone or be like, hey, hang up so I can call my husband. So she had told her mom, tell him that I'm leaving at this time to expect me around this time. And she had done so because she was terrified of this stalker and so she had to make sure that when she pulled in, that Brad was home, the lights were on, and that he would come out to meet her and help her get the kids out of the car And so that's just what any good husband does. Yes, exactly. Like, period. hmm So, Frida, Diane's mother, stated that she had called Brad to tell him, she's on her way home. She'll probably get to you around this time. And when Frida talked to the police, she immediately was like, check out Brad because they were having major issues in their marriage. And Diane was thinking about divorcing Brad. If he would not do what she asked and get a full-time job and help support the family, then she was seriously thinking of getting a divorce because at that point she was like, he'll get a full-time job and he'll pay me child support. I'd be in better off position than I am right now. Yes, financially. But it kind of puts his back to a
0: wall, which I'm sure Mr. Brad
1: didn't like. He did not. So she's saying that to him. And Frida also claimed that, like we've talked about, Brad had never had regular employment during their entire six-year marriage. And she personally thought that they were going to had to divorce because she could not imagine him deciding to get a full-time job. She didn't want to say that to her daughter, but she was just like, I didn't think this was, like, going to last long because I don't think he was going to do it. Frida also said that she was absolutely sure because she was the only one who talked to Brad after they made the decision about the children going with Diane instead of staying with Frida. That Brad did not know that the children were going to be with Diane because it had been a last minute decision to not leave the children. And because Frida was the one that spoke to him and she did not disclose to him that the kids were with Diane, the police at that point began to believe that it had been a surprise for Brad that his three-month-old baby and three-year-old toddler were in the car with Diane. So they began to suspect that Brad had actually planned to kill his wife. And then immediately leave to go and establish an alibi because at this time, he's a former police officer. He knows, yep. and he's a criminal justice professor, that it's also cold out. It's Michigan in February. So they would have a very hard time determining exactly when she was killed. Yep. And they would have to do it. And like, maybe it happened at this time. So if he shoots her, as soon as she gets home, immediately leaves and goes and does something for hours, somebody else, because he'll say, well, like, you know, I expected her to get home and go in the house and then she was supposed to call me or something. He could establish an alibi and then somebody else would have to find her and then they'd be the one that would call and he'd be out be doing something. So they think that that's what was supposed to happen and that he had come down, shot her the second time and then realized his children were in the car. So now he can't leave them in the car. It's freezing. It's Michigan. In February, the sun is going down or has gone down already. It's dark. It's 645. So he needs to now try to get rid of the murder weapon and circle around and try to make it look like he has come upon the scene. Yeah. Because he is not, thank God, a monster enough to also kill his children. Yeah. Which is like a silver lining that we're like props to him for also not murdering a literal baby. So that's what they're thinking now at this point. And this would also make sense with the hurried disposal of the gun and the fact that he was wearing camouflage, head to toe. Uh, you
0: think? He just said that that's like what he wore when he went out. Well, where's your like, I love my TV anchor wife <laughs> shirt, <laughs> sir?
1: Now Brad is telling them because they're saying, you know what? It's kind of looking like this could be possibly you, bruh. He said. Brad. Uh, yeah, Brad that he did not own a .22 similar to the gun found, which was a Remington Scoremaster. It's a very specific type of gun. But multiple people in his life, including a cleaning woman who had cleaned a former residence of the Kings and other people that had seen the gun and knew of it because it was a specific type of gun, said that he did own that exact gun. And in fact, his brother did his very best to not implicate him at all. But it was, I think, discovered that it had been a gun given to him or the same type of gun given to both brothers when they had learned to hunt as teenagers. Hmm. So this was a gun that had been around for a while. Brad also said that he didn't deny that he had once owned a gun like this, but he said that he had sold it in Denver. That's what he said. So he said he hadn't had it in years. He hadn't had it like in a decade. But other people said that they had seen it in the intervening years. So he was lying. Also, there was something else, which is very like woofstable for a criminal justice professor. I don't know if it was at the reported break-in, the one that he called about while Diane was out of town. Or if it was at the murder. But it was like, he essentially had said at some point that he had been broken into or it might have even been on the day of the murder. He had like hurriedly tried to make it look like a break-in too for some reason. But the police noted that the glass on the window
0: broken from my inside. So exactly. I was <laughs> waiting for you to do It's like as a criminal justice professor. Babe, come come babe. On. But that's what happens when you only teach maybe like one class.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think also if you're panicking.
1: That's why I wasn't entirely sure if it was about the original break-in or if he'd like also done it on the scene, because if he's panicking, it is embarrassing. Come on, dude. That is not a good look for you or Western Michigan University who had hired you. Well, upon further investigation, the police also spoke to a friend of Diane's, who said that prior to her murder, Diane had believed that maybe it was Brad making the threatening phone calls. She said that she could tell It was him, but trying to disguise his voice.
0: Like he had like a vocoder from like Walmart? No, like he was talking in
1: a very slow and deliberate way, in a way to cover up his actual voice. It was like a very stilted, like no one spoke like that. But she was like underneath it. I still felt
0: like it was Brad.
1: It was Brad. And she said this to a friend, and she thought that maybe he was trying to scare her in staying into the relationship or something. Like she—or it was about control. It was about scaring her as revenge for, like, pushing him into this decision. She was not at that point terrified that he was going to murder her. No, but I'm so glad she told her friend. I am too. So it was looking more and more likely that, other than the legit letter from James Wickware Jr., Brad, Diane's criminal justice teaching husband, was the so-called stalker. Yeah. The FBI was tasked with investigating the magazine cutout letter, and they were not able to get much more physical evidence from it because the local police had tried to process it using a technique that was kind of, like, outdated and not very helpful. And the FBI said, I think it was on the forensic files, that essentially, like, once it's processed that way, it's really hard to process it the correct way. So there wasn't a lot that they could get from it forensically, but the FBI behavioral scientists and analysts could look at it like, how are they positioning the letters? Why are they doing it this way? And the number one thing that they said was, people don't do this. The FBI analyst said in like decades of working, he had never seen a legit stalking letter that looked like this. This was like out of a movie. And the only reason a person would do this Is because they're trying to disguise their handwriting. Yes. And that if it was a true unknown stranger person, she wouldn't have known their handwriting. So it didn't matter what it looked like. Totally, It's the fact that he could not use his own handwriting or even like a typewriter or electric typewriter at the time that could be linked to him because it could be linked to him. And he'd actually already gotten in trouble for something like this with a typewriter which was he had gotten into when he was... This is kind of why he left the police station. Is a bunch of things. I think he did a bunch of stupid stuff when he was working as a police officer, too. But there was one part of the book where a former colleague talked about how he was, like, jealous of him for some reason. And even though they were very similar in rank and he was getting his master's, but the other guy already had his master's, but they both had beautiful wives and they both had good lives. For some reason, Brad had a big jealousy about him and spread a rumor that his wife was cheating on him. and then he kind of found out it was him and he was like appropriately checked like about don't do that don't be weird dude then he had written a letter to the editor of the newspaper saying something about like corruption and like blaming this other police officer and so the editor did not run the letter they just sent it to the police chief and they were like you got somebody in your squad who's doing this and they went around to check and they were like IBM electric typewriters and it was exactly matched to Brad's. So you're thinking that this guy can't use his own handwriting because Diane would know. He also knows that... He can't use his typewriter. He can't use his <laughs> typewriter because they can check it and catch him like they He's caught him. Got caught with the IBM <laughs> typewriter. Yeah. So. so at this point, this is what he comes up with, right? And it also would make sense that his fingerprints would be on it because she received the letter. It came to their home. He had also made sure he touched it, obviously. So this to the FBI person, the agent, was like, this seems likely that it's him. And I don't even have to process this forensically to know that. So the police are pretty sure that Brad killed his glamorous wife. But why? By all accounts, he loved her. She was also the breadwinner. So this was like kind of like the killing the golden goose, who's also your children's primary caretaker, seems pretty short-sighted. Yes. Well, the answer to that question came in the form of quite a few women
0: coming forward to say that they had an affair. With Brad King. No, not what I was thinking. I was thinking just that it was, he was going to be back into a corner for work. Yeah. I can't believe it was also affairs. That's crazy. Yes. And
1: it wasn't, there wasn't like a specific woman that was like driving this. Like he wasn't in love with somebody else. It was while Diane was busting her ass and birthing and raising his Ugh, babies. Gross. Brad was seducing his students. The grossest. I think like three out of five of the women were his students. <gasps>
0: yep. No wonder it took him so long to drive back and forth from work.
1: Oh, yeah. He wasn't just driving back and forth. One girl he had also met who wasn't one of his students, but he had met by going to his former frat house. Ew, disgusting. Yeah, which is so gross if you're thinking about this guy attending frat parties. And he's this, like, creepy, bald, middle-aged dad. Dad. I think he was like 43, 44 at this point, who's going to like where like 18 to 22 year olds are partying. Would not feel safe with my kid there. No, I don't want some creepy old dude like hitting on my 18 year old daughter. No. So he was also kind of seriously dating. He dated this woman for a few months, a recently divorced single mother in her 30s who was going back to school after her divorce. So she was enrolled in one of his classes. So he was dating girls that were what we think traditionally as undergraduate age, like 18 to 22. But then there was one woman who was in her mid-30s but had kids and was getting involved with him. And he told her and some of the other women that he was seeing that he and Diane were separated and that baby Katari was like a surprise. He didn't even know if it was really his. It was essentially like, oh, we'd already agreed to separate. And it could make sense given the timeline of when we were last together. But like, we're just going to figure out how to navigate this divorce and separation while we have this new baby. And so that's what this woman thought. Because he had, like, literally come from the hospital once, like, from the hospital to go on a date with this woman after his daughter was born. So gross. Yeah. She said later that after she found out his wife had been murdered, she wanted to support him. So she went to the funeral. And she was shocked that he, A, wasn't talking to her, of course. But B, that everyone was like his wife, his wife, and he was talking about his loss at the funeral and everything. And she was so confused because she thought he'd at least be like, well, we were obviously in the process of divorcing, but she's the mother of my children and I love her. And it was all lie. And so he tried to tell her that shortly before her death, they had decided to reconcile. So they were getting back together and he had been a coward and just hadn't been able to tell her. But like, he hadn't lied the first time. He had just been lying recently because he had decided to reconcile with her. So that's why everyone was acting like they were still fully married. So gross. Oh my goodness. So Brad had his cake and he was eating it too. He had a beautiful breadwinner wife who was famous, locally yeah. famous. So that gave him that little shine as well. She took care of the kids well. He got to once again pretend to be Mr. America, the big man on campus, attending frat parties, sleeping with co-eds. He was barely teaching at that time. So, all the time that he said he was like teaching, he could be out sleeping with women. Yeah, like Lowell Caulfield breaks down one day around the weekend that eventually Diane was murdered. And he's like slept with two women in the same day, went to a frat party, and met a third. It was like he was packing it in. But yeah, he was barely working. And in fact, the Battle Creek Inquirer said that during the winter semester in which Diane had been killed, Brad actually wasn't working at all. So like the semester before when Katari was born, he was teaching one. He had no classes going on in that like January, February yeah, Would you notice that
0: like as no income?
1: Well, he could always say to her, they pay me at the end of the semester or something or mid-semester. And so I haven't gotten paid. And then he knows she's going to be dead before the end of the semester comes. So Brad had been let go from his job for failing to show up for his one class that he had the previous semester on at least two occasions. Whoa. So he had one class and he wasn't even showing up for it to teach. So he wanted to go back to get his Ph.D., which would be more time away from his family. Yeah. A greater financial burden for
0: Diane. And more college pussy. And
1: more time that he could be cool college joke dude. Banging the girls. (laughs) Yeah. Brad. Brah. So Diane had suspected infidelity. Now, this was not let into the trial because the judge ruled that this was hearsay. The cops knew this. Yeah, Was that she told one of her friends that she did suspect infidelity because Brad had stopped sleeping with her. Yeah. So he was no longer intimate with her in any way. And he had always been very affectionate, very sexual. So she was suspecting it, but she didn't have any, like, particular person she was suspecting or how. In their six years of marriage, it had been Diane, who had carried the family financially. Obviously, she wanted a change. She wanted him to work so she could be at home with Marlar and Kateri. And she should just get, like, a break. She's like, it's your turn, brah. But this would not do for Brad King. The police theorized that if Diane pushed—and she was pushing. I mean, yeah. people said that they noted— that she was short with him, she was angry, she was yelling a lot more, she berated him. And of course, she also had him go to couples counseling with her to try to get him to make this change. Then, and if he did make the change, that would mean no more affairs, no more fun, no PhD, which of course he wanted that elevated status too of another higher degree. There was also evidence that Diane said she would leave Brad if he didn't do what she said and what she wanted. And many close to the couple also said that Brad was still obsessed with Diane, with his own proximity to her fame, with her Mohawk heritage, something which he bizarrely tried to pass off as his own to some of his students and affair partners. He said that he was part Native American on his father's side, which was a complete lie. This guy is white, blue-eyed, like, there's, it does not look good. He was taking ownership of her culture. Yeah. He basically was obsessed with her. He was obsessed with possessing her, with possessing her beauty, her fame, her Native American heritage. Those were all things he wanted to possess. I mean, even if you think about it, it's the whole line of, is it romantic or is it a red flag? When he talks about seeing her for the first time and being like, stay out of this. It's like on me. And about not taking no for an answer. Yeah. And... How he said, I love you really fast. And this is coming from the girl that said, I love you real fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. But like these things all can be romantic. They but can they be. They can also be huge fucking red flags. They can also be huge fucking red yeah. flags. So all of this is clear when we look back yeah. with Hindsight as twenty twenty that he wanted to possess her. Yeah. So that meant that he had everything he wanted when they had their situation. She's bringing in the money. She's famous. She's giving him a shine, but he also can go back to school and dither around and do whatever the hell he wants. Now she's saying you have to change your whole lifestyle around and you don't get to do anything as you want to do anymore or you don't have me anymore and you're going to have to get your own big boy job and you're going to have to pay me child support. How do you like that? And he said, not going to happen. The initial police investigation had been marred with some mistakes, mostly on account of a smaller police force that did not process many homicides. Yeah. So while the prosecutor was having the police dig up more evidence, many of which we've already discussed now at this point, Brad had moved with the children to Colorado. So he's out. He's in Colorado. And there was like, you know, a conflict between the prosecutor and the police because they thought they had enough evidence. And the prosecutor's like, if he gets away with this, we can't try him again. So we got to get more evidence. But eventually they did have way more witnesses. Everyone that I just mentioned and all of the things that we talked about. And Brad was arrested in Colorado in early 1992 and extradited back to Michigan where he was going to stand (sighs) trial for Diane's murder. And what's going on with the babies? They were placed in the custody of Diane's mother. Okay, good. Yes. Which had also been going on. There was a whole custody issue. I'm sure. Because Because he was already in Denver. Yeah. So at some point after the murder, he had let Frida and Royal take the kids. That's just a manipulative tactic, I think. And then... They basically were, like, at that point thinking that he did it. And they were like, we're not going to give these babies back to you. And then there was, like, a whole custody dispute. And eventually they were ordered to give the kids back to him. And that's when he moved with them. Fled. Yeah, he fled to Denver and was setting up a whole new life there. They were not there for long. It's, like, hard to hear, too, because at that point, Marler was, like, four or five by the time he was arrested. And he was telling people... Like, he saw what happened. He was there and it was two bad men with guns and not his daddy. But it's like, they're the most impressionable at this age. Andy and I were just talking about this because her daughter had a legit allergic reaction. And my four-year-old daughter started thinking she was having an allergic reaction. And it was because it's
0: just so so small. It's nothing in comparison. It's like an
1: impressionable thing. Which is given all that alone time with a child, you can make them believe something. Absolutely, especially you can if do that with an adult. Yeah, when they're only three years old. Yeah. when it happens. Yeah, yeah. He was arrested, and the kids did end up with Frida and Royal. So before it went to trial, however, there was one more surprising discovery: another twenty-two Remington Scoremaster gun was found in a neighbor's attic near where they had been living at the time. The defense argued that they should dismiss the charges against Brad because clearly this similar or same-ish weapon had been the one that fired the bullets. And that means that maybe the killer had gotten away and stashed the real murder weapon in this attic, not in the lake, and that the lake had maybe been like a setup, it sounds like. I don't know exactly what the argument was for this, but it was just more proof that they had gone down with tunnel vision looking at Brad and they hadn't searched other houses in the area. They hadn't been looking for it. But forensically, the first time, the bullets that were found in Diane's body were so damaged that they could not conclusively say without a shadow of doubt that they had come from the gun that was found in the creek. Yeah. I think that there was a lot of damage to the bullets and potentially some damage to the gun. Now, these were older style guns. Yes. And obviously, as time goes by, there's different ways to tell and differentiate them and how they're shot. So the ballistics expert who was on the forensic file said they were very lucky in this circumstance that while they could not prove that the first gun absolutely for sure shot it, they could prove that the second gun absolutely did not shoot them. So it is believed by authorities that Brad found another of the same type of gun and planted it in order to try to deflect suspicion. Okay. So at trial, the prosecutor argued that Brad did not want his cushy situation to change. According to one of his affair partners, Brad was angry that Diane had frozen their checking account so he could not access money around the time that Kateri was born. He was angry that she was pushing for her way or the highway situation. And we know that Diane has this forceful, strong personality. And that he was angry he was going to have to give up his ideas of going back and getting his PhD because he wouldn't be able to do that as a single father if they divorced. The prosecutor also argued that Brad did stand to benefit financially from Diane's death in the form of a life insurance policy that was issued by her news station. A coworker of Diane's reported that Brad had come in to talk to the general manager of the station very soon after Diane's murder to get his insurance money. Because they held the policy. He was like, when do I get the money? He didn't learn about that in etiquette school. No, <laughs> no. Another affair partner said that Brad had made a date with her for the night that Diane was murdered. Now, this would be a very sus alibi. However, they were wondering if he was setting up his alibi because he had eventually called her and said, my wife was just killed or my ex-wife or my soon-to-be ex-wife was killed. I can't see you and I, I like, can't talk to you for the like, upcoming few weeks while this is going on. But there was a theory that maybe he was trying to set up some sort of backup plan. Yes, and then I think Brad countered that their plans were not for that night; that they were supposed to be for the next night. But it's still like you're setting up something. You're setting that's... up either a date for the next night, yeah, or which you're still cheating. Which he did admit that he cheated with two partners, but I think it was more like five or tried to, and he hit on other women that he that didn't sleep Obviously. with him. Yeah. Or he was actually trying to leave and set up an alibi, which was like, it's not perfect. I'm not perfect. I was a cheater, but I'm not a killer because it just doesn't make sense with the timing. Yeah, the rhetoric is strong. The defense argued that the police had tunnel vision. They had a local celebrity, a relatively botched early investigation, although they're not obviously arguing that right away (laughs) because they don't want to admit that the state had done anything wrong. I mean, the prosecution's not saying, but that's what the defense is saying. They said they fucked up the investigation. They needed a culprit. Because obviously everybody knew who she was and they're saying we need answers about what this is. They argued that Diane had stopped along the drive and called Brad. Brad is saying that she stopped at like a gas station and she had called him and said, by the way, I have the kids with me. So that he knew that the kids were with him. But we have no evidence that that's true, that he knew that the kids were with him. And that they had decided it was easier to go after the husband, the known entity, rather than actually find the stalker
0: and real murderer. Because there's not one.
1: Yeah. The defense argued that the evidence against Brad was circumstantial. And as a former police officer and criminal justice professor, he would have known better to make so many mistakes in the execution of the crime. Like he was too smart for all the dummy mistakes he made. The prosecution countered. We're saying that he didn't know the kids were in the car and that's why he panicked and made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. On December 14th, 1992, the jury said... Guilty as fuck. Yes. Bradford King was found guilty of first-degree murder. He also received, I think, some extra time for using a firearm in the commission of crime. In comments to author Lowell Caulfield, Bradford claimed that the judge had threatened the jury to come to a decision or they would have to spend Christmas away from their families. Which doesn't really sound like a thing a judge would do. I think they'd say... Make the most of your time and deliberations yes. because Christmas is 10 days away. So let's make a decision. So he's like, they were forced into somehow finding me guilty because it's like they could have just as easily found you not guilty yes. fast.
0: Yeah. <laughs> if you were not guilty, <laughs> and like either way, they're getting out of there.
1: Yeah. On January 6th, 1993, Brad was sentenced to life in
0: prison without the possibility of parole. I mean, it has to piss off genuine law enforcers when people do shit like this. So Lowell
1: Caulfield said in his afterthoughts that Brad himself had been pissed off as a police officer when he saw people exploiting loopholes or getting off yeah. because of shitty police work. Yeah. Or they had passed a lie detector test, but he knew they were lying somehow. And he wanted to exploit the holes in what he saw the criminal justice system for himself. And then he's really angry because it didn't work for him. It worked for other criminals, but not him. And also, these are the remarks that he said to the judge and jury before he was sentenced, which I'm like, sir, you catch more flies with honey, not vinegar, because this is the part where he can like make a statement asking for
0: leniency. But you can't make honey if you're spoiled rotten.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is what he said in front of the judge who was about to sentence him. He looked directly at the judge and said, first, you forced a trial in this county on me. You forced a jury on me, a jury with considerable prior knowledge of this case and obvious opinions. Second, you allowed the prosecutor, your friend, to continue to attempt to enter inadmissible testimony into this trial, which was not true. There was like many, many, many things that they did not let of in. Course. Like I said, the hearsay. And there were some other things. Like he also prevented her family from wearing like these like pins, like these buttons. In her honor. In her honor, because he was like, he didn't want to sway the yeah. jury. This was a very fair judge. Yes. Third, you remained the trial judge when you knew that you were biased for the prosecution. Fourth, you knew that to ensure a conviction would be the only way to cover up the incompetence of the investigation into the death of my wife. First, this case carried a lot of media coverage and political impact. To control the trial process was necessary in order to ensure a conviction. Why were these points carried out in this trial? To cover your guilt in the conspiracy to convict me? To cover your guilt about the travesty of justice you knew this would be? I guess the judge looked up from the papers that he was signing and, and Lowell Caulfield wrote, he glared momentarily, then just resumed writing. To the jury, he said. I charge you with the failure to follow the court rules. I charge you with lying during the selection process. I charge you with willful misconduct. You also threw out the basic tenet Wait, presumed Wait, is he the incense. judge now? Is he the judge now? Who is he charging? I say you chose to act in the manner you did for your own comfort, not in the interest of justice. I have nothing but contempt for you. I feel like the jury's like, Samesies. same Z. <laughs> same, same father. <laughs> yes. Finally, I stand here a proud man. I did not kill my wife. I am not guilty. I am taught that all things are related, everything is a part of the greater whole. I have asked the great spirit to guide me on my path.
0: Oh, the great Native American spirit? Mm-hmm. <gasps> uh, oh, yeah. How dare him. <laughs> How dare.
1: You. And help me restore balance and peace to my life. I am taught that your actions are not actions of true humans. Like he's back to talking about the jury, I guess. And you have forgotten about being human, so you've acted as you did toward me. The judge is like, "Ah, uh, yeah, you're sentenced to life imprisonment, and also a couple more years for using a firearm and the commission of a felony. So Lowell Caulfield wrote, a mohawk quoting scripture. A man without a drop of native blood evoking the great spirit, the irony did not go unnoticed as he was led away. Good. Oh, wow. the balls. So Bradford King remains locked up in Michigan in a prison where he is housed with another one of our love murderers, Michael Fletcher, who killed his wife, Leanne Fletcher. I cannot remember exactly what episode it was, but it was the one where he was, he's the attorney sleeping with the judge and we had that really terrible love letter. Yeah. Yes. Kateri and Marlar were raised by Diana's mother and stepfather and are both successful professional adults Of course now. they are. Yeah. Someone who worked at Diane's news station said that the kids came back, I think when they were like late teens or early adults, so that they could see where their mother worked and understand more about her life. Oh. Yeah. They're said, I read in a couple different sources, that they seem to favor Diane in her looks and I hope and also her spirit. I'm sure they do. Here's to Diane and to difficult,
0: trailblazing women everywhere. Yeah. And Frida for raising her kids. Yes.
1: I think also, like, I don't know this personally. I'm just, this is me speculating. I know that Royal and Frida had a difficult time at the beginning of their marriage, but it sounds like they had really come full circle. And it's that thing we always talk about. And I know so many of you guys can understand this and see it yourself where you might have a difficult parent or not a perfect parenting situation but then you see your parent with like you see your parent with your children and now as grandparents they're like stellar so I'm hoping that was the case yeah for them yeah in conclusion man you gotta look out for those red flags and red flags
0: around those mommy issues totally and I'd say it's pretty fair game to never trust someone who tries to steal your heritage
1: <laughs> yeah huge huge red flag huge. right there And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murder. Bye. Bye.